Hi folks, and welcome back to the High Performance Human Podcast. I'm your host, Simon Ward, and each week I'm joined by guests to share knowledge and wisdom to help you on your journey to living longer, living healthier, and of course, improving your triathlon performance. So today it's episode 239 of the podcast, and I know there are some people who've listened right from that very first episode. One of them is today's guest, Mark Osborne. And near the end of the show, you'll hear Mark say that he didn't think he was worthy enough to be on the show when comparing himself to some of my previous guests. But I completely disagree with Mark on that. In fact, I consider him to be a perfect example of what I'm hoping to achieve with each week's episode. Sharing ideas that are not mainstream so that you, the listener, can experiment and find out what works for you to optimize your life. Anyway, enough waffle from me. Let's hear what Mark's got to say. Oh, welcome to the show, Mark Osborne. Yeah, hi, Simon. Thanks for inviting me. Lovely to see you again. It's been quite a while, hasn't it? Now that we've, yes. uh, we've got sort of adjusted swim swim sessions, uh, we used to see each other quite regularly at the pool. Yeah, it has been a while. It must be about two years, two and a half years, probably, face to face. Well, probably since since the pandemic started. I think the last swim, I, I was looking at my training diary the other day because somebody had asked me, I think my last swim session before all the pools closed down was like 18th of March or something in 2020. And I've been swimming since then like you have, but we used to have um, early morning master sessions two or three times a week, didn't we, that we used to uh, bump into each other. Yeah, I missed those sessions. They were, um, they were good. They were good um, for the band, as well as the training. So. Well, always also nice start to the day, isn't it? To get in the yeah. pool and have one session done by eight o'clock. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So let's talk about the reason why you're on this podcast. I'm going to let you tell tell everybody why you're on the podcast because I, I really, you know, the one thing that I've after having read your email and the stuff you sent me, the one thing I don't want to do is is for listeners to feel like this is just me and you bigging up my podcast and all the ideas I have. Um. But equally, I think this has been a fabulous journey that you've been on over the last few years. And I did want to share that and share the sort of the whole idea of personal experimentation and trying to find out for yourself what works. So I'll, I'll let you tell the story from um, from the beginning. Yeah, it's quite interesting because um, the podcast and the holistic approach to training and life and the high performance human sort of fits in with the way I view sport. It wasn't always like that. I mean, when I first started running, I had quite a lot of problems. I I couldn't run probably more than a mile without getting calf issues. And um, that obviously spoiled the whole enjoyment for me. It took a while to work out why why that was. And it's basically down to technique. So I had a journey from starting to try and run, running longer distances, moving into a bit of triathlon, then... I joined SWAT and I learned a lot about, say, heart rate zones, how to perform, how to train better, that kind of thing. And I fed that into my training. Basically, for me, I'm quite lazy. So I used to swim as a child. Like, um, and I did competition swimming for a while. Um, once we had a pool in the local town that I actually lived in, because until then I just, we, we just go swimming in the sea. So from a not more perspective, I'm quite comfortable with that because for the first part of my life, that's all we, all we did until we got a pool. So I used to um, swim and train 
and but I'd find the easiest way to get the results that I wanted. And that basically carried over into everything I've done in life. So I'm always looking for a smart way to do things. So when I'm running, if I'm going to enter an event, then I set myself the goals and the training that I expect I will need to be able to perform in that event. But then I look for the smartest way to do the training so I can cut down on the time needed to do it. So the... So that reminds me of a post I did a long time ago, maybe before we even met, called Minimum Effective Dose. Uh, didn't get the, quite the readership I thought, and I think most people thought that the title was related to, uh, to, to performance-enhancing drugs. But what, what I was really trying to get at, and, and something that Malcolm Brown talks about, is what's the minimum amount of training you need to achieve the goal? Because uh, apart from a few extreme people, most people don't have hours and hours to devote, do they? So they, they have to be smart, which is back to your point about what's what's the smartest way of training? What's How much training do I really need to do to achieve this? Yeah, and it's all about, for me, it's all about finding those little improvements. So like continual improvement of what I'm doing. So that may be just a, a little tweak here or a little tweak there. I might tweak something that doesn't work. So then I will try something different. So the podcasts I really like to listen to because I'll just listen to to your guests, what their ideas are. And my approach is that nobody's going to be 100% right in their approach. But if there's 10% of it that's useful, I'll take that 10%, do a bit more investigation uh, around that and then see how I can fit that into how I train and how I live my life. Because as you say on many of your podcasts, it's basically personal. So I think you have to take this information and then tweak it, work out how you can use it personally and make the best of it. And that's going to be different for everybody. So it's same with nutrition, same with all the running technique. So that's my approach to it. I just take the information and then I investigate a little bit further try it, see if it works. If it does, I'll expand on it. That's quite a bit different to a lot of people uh, who will uh, hear about something and then try to seek out the research and make their decision based on what does big, what does the big research say? You know, is this, has this been peer reviewed in this journal? If it has, and the, the consensus was generally that it's going to help your fitness, then I'm going to do that. Um, so we'll, we'll come on to some nutritional um, approaches later on. I know a lot of people go, well, you know, the uh, the evidence isn't very good in terms of that. But in any research, you find that there are some people for whom the approach doesn't work at all and they're not responsive to that. You'll find the majority of people in that bell curve, so the 80% of people in the middle for whom, you know, they're averagely responsive. But you will also find some super responders for whom that particular approach really works well. But of course, they get they get thrown out by the research and the consensus is, well, this might work in certain circumstances. If I'm reading what or listening and understanding what you're saying correctly, you take the approach that I could be one of those outliers. So I'm going to give it a try for a while and see what happens. And if it doesn't work for me, then I'll, you know, I'll know, but it may well work for me. And then it's been a worthwhile experiment. Yeah. I think sometimes you sort of sent down the wrong track as well. So like before I joined SWAT, I was going out and doing, say, fell races. I was just running as hard as I could for the fell race. Mm -hmm. And then I was, um, 
when it got a little bit too much, I'd just slow down a little bit. And then when I felt I could push again, I'd push again. And then I joined SWAT, got a lot more understanding of HR zones, you know, where my lactic thresholds was. Then I went through a period where I was starting to go out and race and I was looking at my watch and heart rate and I was running according to where I thought my heart rate should be, which, and looking at the times for those races, I was never as quick. So it didn't take me very long to realize that um, it was pointless doing that and the old way of doing it where you just push as hard as you can, slow down a little bit and then, you know, to recover and then go again and just ignore your heart rate. Then that worked a lot better for me. I know I know if you're doing a long distance and you say you're trying to run a marathon in the three hours there and you're hitting a certain pace, there's some metrics that you're going to need. But for me in that particular occasion, that didn't work for me. So I sort of tried it and then, and that was me misinterpreting it really. Cause like I got that understanding of heart rate zones and thought, oh, that's, that's probably where I should be aiming when I'm doing a race. But listening to podcasts you've done since then, you know, dumping the tech, not looking at your watch all the time, mm-hmm. it sort of feeds into that. So sometimes you sort of change your behavior, don't work quite how you'd expect it to, so you just change it back again. So, yeah, I'm doing that all the time. So you uh, let's let's go back to when you joined SWAT then. So uh, what what year was that? Can you remember? Uh, I can't remember. It's quite a few years ago now, though. I think it was, it was, must have been about 2016, around yeah. that, I think. That would be right. I think I started SWAT in 2015. So 2016 would be about right. You probably got in on one of the lower, lower price memberships. I did, yeah. I was in it for a couple of years. Yeah. Okay. So um, structured training, heart rate zones. Um, what what were the other things that you picked up during that first sort of part of your experimenting then? Yeah, the the most interesting thing probably was um, I was doing a, a lot of quite long distance races. So I was doing a lot of what's called hard moors races. I remember I remember you telling me about the hard moors where you, you struggled on one, didn't you? I think you had a DNF. That was yeah, that was later. That okay. was quite that was quite interesting. That sort of feeds into the mobility and the the strength stuff. Okay. Uh, so I can definitely come back to that. But the hard moors races, like the ones I was doing, like 30 miles approximately. And what I realized from SWAT, because I was doing run training, but I wasn't doing that much. I was doing quite a lot of training on the bike. So as part of that process, I realized that I could run as well as I've been running before by doing quite a bit of training on the bike and not doing so much running. So lessening the impact of running and say doing the hit like VO2 max intervals on the bike because I just found it easier to do that. So that was a good takeaway. The SWAT really sort of brought me in touch with a lot of aspects of training that I'd not really considered before. So I just used to go out and run and go on the treadmill. I'd run on the treadmill every evening, but I wouldn't really consider how fast I was running, what my heart rate was doing or what training I should be doing. And so it wasn't really training. It was probably just more classes exercise because there was no real goal involved. And then the structure of SWAT and the plans you were providing 
really gave me that focus of how training worked. So then, again, I looked at that and thought how best I could use it. And as part of that process, obviously, I realized about HIV. So I also got sort of sympathetic, parasympathetic nervous systems sort of understood how my body was working a lot more. So it's probably, that was probably the catalyst of trying to understand how my body worked from a physical and nutritional perspective. And um, it really worked um, well for me. So it moved me from that, just going out and doing exercise to training. Do you still, do you still use HRV? I do, yeah. Yeah, I what, still what use it. What method are you using to, uh, to get your I, results? Yeah, I just use um, Elite HRV, which is just a free app. So just mm-hmm. use my Garmin heart rate belt. And is, that just one where have, is that one where you have to sit, lie down for 60 seconds first thing in the morning and just uh, it, it calculates it that way? Yeah, you can either lay down, stand up or sit. So I just sit and take it in the morning for like two and a half minutes. You can set how long you want to do it. And I just do that. But I don't read too much into it. And I know one of your podcast guests, I can't remember who it was, didn't seem that big on it um but what i've noticed is say you're going on holiday and you're going flying on a plane you get up at four o'clock in the morning whatever your hrv is going to be like massively unsympathetic because you you're flying away on holiday and you've not had much sleep and it's very sort of for me it's sort of flicks from sympathetic sometimes to proud sympathetic and you could misinterpret that as though you're overtraining, but really I sort of understand that it's just because I'm doing this or I'm doing that. So I, th- I think one of the things that I've learned from speaking to people like um, well, Mark Bubbs, Dan Plews, Paul Larson, um, and probably a few more, is that HRV is just one data point. For people who are training regularly, you know, you can, you can get up one morning and feel rubbish and your heart rate variability will be saying, Ashley, it looks like you've recovered. And on another day, you can get up and feel great and your heart rate variability will be really low. Um, so you, you have to sort of decide which, which, um, which measurement you're going to follow then, don't you? Um, mm. You're going instinctively or on the data. And then the more you, as you dig a bit deeper, you learn that, Sometimes your HRV can be lower. I mean, at least certainly for me it is. Um, if I've had alcohol uh, too close to going to bed, um, if I, certain types of alcohol seem to um, impact it more, um, flying and get, getting either not getting as much sleep or um, uh, time zone changes. So when I'm coming back from somewhere like America, you know, you've gone through several time zone changes and you've got a bit of jet lag. And the other things, dehydration, I've noticed um, can really uh, can can really tank my HRV. So you've got to have context around it, and you've got to take those things. And of course, if you're if you're a Tour de France cyclist and you're wearing uh, one of these HRV monitors, you're pretty much going to be in the red. And it's telling you you need to recover for the whole of the three week tour, aren't you? So it'd be no good trying to trying to respond to your HRV then, because you'd be asking the direct sportive if you could sit at the back all day. <laughs> yeah, that's not going to happen. <laughs> no, not really. I mean. I sort of view myself as Mr. Average. So, like, I take my HRV and, like, I'm not – when I race, I'm not racing for podiums. I'm just doing it because it's fun because I like doing it. So I take my HRV and, yeah, it's a metric. I see what it is. And I, and 
but it would never stop me training or it would never cause me to change behavior because I always go on, right, okay, it says I'm in sympathetic and it says I probably just need to do active recovery, but do I feel like I need to do active recovery? No, I don't. So I'm not going to do active recovery. So if I saw a pattern and I thought, you know, it was telling me something I probably needed to heed, then I would. But right. so you're it's just for, really you're looking, per interest. You're looking for trends rather than actual single data points. Yeah. 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 It's like when I just when when the COVID pandemic hit initially, about two years ago, two and a half years ago, I actually got COVID and I didn't really know I'd got it other than when I was going on the the smart trainer on the bike something in, internal was telling me that it was a bad idea to push my heart rate any higher than like 70%. So, but my HIV was massively unsympathetic for like four or five days. And I didn't realize that what it was until I looked at it after. So that was obviously a trend that it was telling me that it was lower than it had ever been before. It was in sympathetic. So something was going on that I wasn't aware of. And it was, I was fighting off COVID. But I could also feel that something wasn't quite right because every time I tried to push. I listened to a podcast today with um, Bobby McGee, the run coach, and Gwen Jorgensen. She's got COVID at the moment. or at the, I think at the time she recorded the podcast, so just after Christmas. And she was saying that it was just like a cold. However... What she noticed was that her, while her resting heart rate was okay, her exercising heart rate was going through the roof. So she went out for an easy run, eight and a half minutes per mile, so fairly easy for her. And she was exhibiting heart rates equivalent to doing a full-on half marathon, you know, up at threshold. Mm. And um, Bobby McGee was saying he's he's been coaching two or three other people who've had COVID. And nearly everybody said the same. It's just the um, the heart rate response to exercise goes through the roof. And so obviously there's something going on with your cardiac system there. And that's, you know, clearly we need to be careful about what we're trying to, what, what we're trying to do in relation to what damage it might be causing to the heart, because once that's done, it's, it's pretty much irreversible. Yeah. I mean, for like two, probably three months after I had it and Michelle had it at the same time, they, I couldn't run a pills. You know, I just got out of breath a lot quicker than I ever would have done before. So at least for three months after, there was there was something going on. And, um, you know, I could just feel that. It wasn't that anything from a technical perspective was saying that that was going on, but I could just feel it when I was out running that something wasn't quite right. And I, I suppose if something was, it, again, it was my heart rate. It was a little bit higher than I would have expected to be for that kind of effort. Mm. So in the little note you sent me, one of the things that keeps cropping up um, throughout and, and when in your summary, it seems to have been one of the biggest takeaways from this whole journey is um, I introduced you to Louisa. I think I'm not sure if you ever went to see her, but certainly you were listening to her on the podcast. And um, from that, you started to do more, a lot more mobility and a lot more strength work. Yeah, I'd be interested to talk about um, the significance that that's played for you because I think it relates back to those calf problems you were saying that you had earlier. Yeah, when I first started running, I had calf problems, and then I just realised that a lot of that was because I was overstriding and um, that kind of technique. And so I fixed that, but I didn't really fix the mobility. And the mobility, going back to what you mentioned before, the 
the um, the DNF when I was doing the Hardmost 50. So a bit of backstory to it. There's a, there's a, a challenge called the Grand Slam, which um, is a number of ultra races that are throughout the year. So the one I was doing, there was four. So there's like 30 miler, 60 miler, 55 miler, and then 110 miler. Not in, in that order. But the when I first tried it in 2018, the second race of the series, so there was the 30 miler, and then the 55 miler was um, unluckily or luckily, depending on your view, coincided with the... Um, beast from the east so it was just snow so i'd had no problems previously and i set off on that race and i literally only got 15 miles in when i'd previously done the race before so it wasn't that i'd not done those distances before i had so i got about 50 miles in and just got a massive pain in the side of my knee that i just couldn't shake and i Continued on until I think I got about 30 miles in, but by that time I was pretty much just trying to walk as fast as I could. And I got to that stage, I'd slowed down enough. I was still under the cutoffs, but there was a big section to go over the moors and the snow was getting worse. So, and Michelle just happened to be there with the car because it was a checkpoint. So I made a call that, like, if you, it would have been dangerous to continue and irresponsible really because it might be mountain rescue if i'd been slow enough to get over that section so i took the um i took the decision to dnf it so i packed it in at that stage and but again some of your podcasts about lingering over dnfs and stuff like that that's not me so that sort of feeds into how i think as well Whereas half an hour later, I was sat in a restaurant and I was over it. But the the result of that was because I didn't have any knee issues and I couldn't work out where this pain had come from, it just appeared. And I didn't really have it after that. So I couldn't pin down any cause of it. So that was out of the grand slam for that year. So I basically looked at what it could be rejigged my training completely and moved into the mobility strength training and started that in September of that year, just carried it over all the way through winter and just spent a lot of time doing strength and mobility exercises. And that was prompted from a lot of information that I'd got from various sources, including podcasts with like Louisa. Sarah Pitts was posting quite a lot of stuff on mobility at the time and yeah I started that program there but it was more run specific so I know in one of your podcasts you talk about um, exercises where exercises that aren't specific for exercise or aren't natural movements so I tried to focus on things that were more run specific so one person once said to me, "Yeah, you can do you can do leg press. If you get you'll get really good at leg press, but it don't necessarily carry over into running." So I said, "Well, give me something that carries over into running." So he gave me these things like um, Nordic hamstring complex, which has really worked quite well for me. So that was the sort of journey into that mobility and strength, and I really carried it on from there. Then the following year, for 2019, and I did the Grand Slam, and it was fine. So finished all the races and luckily for me that change in strength and conditioning and approach 
also linked in with um, Phil Mafferton and changing the whole diet thing. So it was a bit like a perfect storm for doing the Grand Slam in 2019 because I picked up the, the nutrition and the strength and conditioning. I'm interested in the strength. Um, you, you're obviously still doing that. Um, yeah, even more so to the natural movement. Okay. So now do yoga. Give us, a few, give us a, oh, so you do yoga now, right? Yeah, do yoga. Uh, do it once a week because that's all I can really fit in for an hour. But do a lot of mobility in between. So and standing up desk. I'm sat down at the moment, but I've been working today and I've been stood up quite a lot of the time. Yeah. Um, and that makes a big difference because I was getting a lot of tightness, even though I was doing leg swings every hour or whatever for mobility. I'm trying to keep my hips and back, you know, a little bit looser. The standing up just makes a massive difference because I'm still getting stiffness. You mentioned at some point as well, and no doubt we'll talk about this, is um, Shane Benzie's book, um, Lost Art of Running. And in there, he has examples of people that he's been to watch and worked with. And the the thing that stands out for me, for all of those people, is that then most of them aren't office workers. They're working. There's, I think he's got a Yorkshire shepherdess who, obviously, she's out in the hills all the time. He's got... He did Nicky Spinks. That's right, yeah, yeah, um, and you know he's got people who are are in who who just build robustness and resilience in their body because they're not sitting down; they're doing manual mm. jobs. And actually, when I, you know, I don't when I did the podcast with Andy Peace, he talks about that as well. You know, the people he mentions have got jobs where they're on the feet all day, so they're not sitting yeah. down, so they don't have tight hips, and that means that they then run a bit more naturally. They don't get those sort of complications that come from having tight glutes and short hamstrings. Yeah. I've just read Shane's book and the interesting bit for me was obviously he talks about fascia and I got quite into fascia because I, I read the book, uh, Natural Born Heroes, that I know yes. you've read. Yes. Um, it talks about the natural ability for these um, Greek islanders to just hop and jump over rocks and move around really quickly. So I got interested in it then. And if I if I was younger, I'd have loved to get into free running because I just... Oh. It just amazes me how these guys can just do do those stunts and jump from building to building. So, but Shane sort of carries that on. And what one of the interesting things in his book for me was that he he did a study where he looked at an African city and the movement in the African city where a lot of people did have office jobs, but then he looked, say, I think it was like ten miles out of the city where they were still doing fairly manual jobs mm. and the posture and mobility and really the running like technique was just completely different and more natural. Yes. And the fact that Shane said that um, you can re-architect your fascia if you change your behavior. So if you start standing at your desk, say in three or four months time, you your body's going to adapt to that. So mm-hmm. although you might have sat down for quite a few years in an office like I have, by changing your behavior, you can actually make massive differences to it, which um, I read that and thought, right, great. I'm going to crack on. I, I've, I'm at a standing, stand-up desk now as we talk, and I probably, since I got the anti-fatigue mat as well, because I've got a wooden floor in my kitchen here, um, and that used to sort of make my legs ache a little bit. So I bought an mm. anti-fatigue mat, which I think... Um, Kelly Starrett had talked about in the podcast I did with him because he's 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 written a book on stand up desks, 
and he, he has this little charity where they provide stand-up desks for, for school children. Um, and I bought that. That's been a game changer because it means I can pretty much stand all day without my legs hurting now. And yeah. uh, I, I do feel like my posture is a lot better. Yeah, my glutes function better. My hip flexors are, um, my hip flexors are not as tight as they used to be. And uh, whilst I don't run as much as you, I've really noticed that in the swimming pool that my my um, position in the water is a lot better because I'm a lot more streamlined because I don't I, my, my legs don't sink as much. And if I strangely enough, if I cycle a lot and I'm sort of hunched over the bike and then I swim. Um, the next day for if I do a big ride on the Sunday and then swim on the Monday I, I really notice that if I use a pull boy my time's a lot better which probably means I'm lifting my hips more whereas by Wednesday I've managed to iron out those kinks in my hips and the difference between my pull boy sets and my swimming sets is maybe a couple of seconds per 100 meters yeah um, so that definitely stand-up desks are you know there's I don't think there's any reason why most people couldn't experiment with one at least at home and yeah. you know, I think most most days, or in most companies these days, HR and sort of um, workplace stress teams will probably welcome the idea of having people standing up at their desks. Mm. I think one one word of caution for me is, and I don't think, although I have adapted the standing, I don't think I do it all day. And because um, my dad had a job where he stood at a joiner's desk and he was basically making um, spiral staircases and all kinds of. Mm. Um, joinery tasks during the day and he stood at the desk all day probably in one position uh, it would be moving around a little bit but when it came to retire it had impacted his knees and he had bad knees and whether that was the cause of it I've no idea but I, at the moment I've noticed that if I stand up for too long I do start getting aches at um, the back of my legs so whether that's because I'm not standing correctly you know, it's just, uh, I'm not quite sure with it yet, where to go with it, but I'm still experimenting. So I've had a few conversations about stand-up desks. And I, again, I've, I've been doing my own experimenting. The first thing that I found is a, a bit like you did, that if I stand in one position, um, then I do get those aches. Uh, also, when you start to get those aches, it's easy to have an adopted standing position if you it's called hip hinging so often you see hairdressers like this they'll stand with one hip pushed out to the side and the other leg bent like you're standing at the bar so um i've experimented with having this little foot rail under my desk where i can stand on one leg and put my other foot up you know like like if you're standing at the bar in a pub and yeah. you've got that foot rail so it's something like that so you can change there i also again kelly starrett talked about changing positions constantly and i think there are some research papers out there which show that certain types of working like problem solving is best done sitting down and other tasks that don't require a lot of thinking like phone calls and answering emails um, can be better off done standing up. But I think nearly all of the mobility specialists recommend moving regularly. So you can do some mobility work while, you know, while you're talking, while you're doing your, um, while you're doing your emails, you can stand on one leg. You can do um, a sort of crow a pigeon pose or something. You can um, uh, do a um, do a bit of an inner thigh stretch. Um, then you can go and sit cross-legged and do some work. Then you could go and lie on the floor if you're going to read. Um, then you can go and sit at your desk. And probably moving every 45 minutes is the way to go. Yeah. So you put that, your body in different positions. Yeah, talking about that, um, doing little stretches and things like that while you're stood sort of feeds into that where you can fit 
you can fit training into very small segments in the day because mm-hmm. I picked up on that and started and during lockdown for instance like I was working from home but every time I went to make a cup of tea or every time I went to the toilet I just used to do 10 press-ups yeah or like some exercise or if I was making a cup of tea I'd just stand on one leg for proprioception and see if I could improve that it takes no effort at all and it's like 30 seconds or a minute like every hour or which feeds into I know another one of your podcasts so like you said I don't 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 want to make it sound as I'm beginning your, your podcast up and that's why I'm here but there's a lot of useful information that I've sort of taken adopted and sort of made to work for me I think Brad Cairns talks about this he, he calls the micro workouts um you know and I think he's spoken on his podcast with various guests who do this and he said, look, you know, most people will think, right, I need to go to the gym. I'm going to go for 30 minutes. So you've got to make a special journey there. Um, and then they'll do, you know, th- three sets of 20 press-ups, so that's 60 press-ups, and they'll do that three times a week. Right, so that's 180 press-ups in a week, maybe. But if you did um, every hour, you did five press-ups, uh, or every time the kettle's boiling, um, you did five press-ups, you could easily amass... 30 press-ups a day. And if you did that six day and 30 press-ups in blocks of five, actually isn't that challenging for your body. You probably wouldn't end up that sore. Um, but if you did that six out of the seven days a week, you'd easily get past the 180 press-ups and you wouldn't have to make that journey to the gym. So you're less likely to cancel it because when, when time's short and you've got to make a 20 minute journey to the gym, that's when people will say, Oh no, I haven't got time to do that. So they don't do it at all. Whereas doing these little micro um, workouts you're just amassing the numbers aren't you so you could easily get yeah. five press-ups five air squats and five pull-ups and hour. I used to I used to work under the misconception that you had to do it in all one all in one go so if you were doing 100 press-ups you had to do 100 press-ups mm. like in one go otherwise you didn't get the benefit but just doing like 10 every now and again probably for me again it's all individual provided more benefits than than if I'd done them in a block well, I, I, I think the thing is there, if, you like, if you've carried on doing that for two or three years now, whereas if you were going to the gym, it would have become inconvenient or the gym would have been closed because of COVID and so you didn't do it, then um, which is the best option? Doing it, doing it three times a week and doing the 100 in one go or just doing them every day but continuing to do it over three years. Also, I suppose most of our, most of our ideas – for those of us who don't spend a lot, or for those people who don't spend a lot of time reading into strength workouts, most most ideas are popularised by what's in Men's Health or Women's Health or some other sort of fitness magazine, and most of those are surrounding bodybuilding style workouts where he's got you got to do three sets of ten, two volitional failure. But what you're trying to do there, what what we're trying to do as endurance athletes is build a robust physique that will take. Um, the regular repeated, you know, um, training of running or cycling or swimming. So it doesn't really matter how you do that. If you want to build muscle, then you have got to exhaust the muscles and you have got to do those sort of quite fatiguing sets. But they're two different things. Yeah. When when I was looking at ultras and endurance, and it sort of stemmed from the DNF in the 50, I sort of worked out that it's not run fitness that stops you finishing. It's never run fitness. It's always body breakdown mm-hmm. of whatever isn't fit enough to do that, say, 20 hours on your feet or, you know, slight technique issues that causes 
something to start hurting. It's never that you're not fit enough to run because a lot of it's fast walking anyway. The, it's because your body's not physically strong enough mm-hmm. to keep doing the distance or keep keep on your feet for 20 hours or whatever like that. So that's why I just switched focus and just went to more strength and mobility. And I'll probably do more strength and mobility now than I do running because I'm not biking or swimming at the moment because of various things and me events this year running. I'm probably doing quite a lot of running, but I'm doing just as much strength and mobility exercises as running, but different types. Like I know you talk about um, strength training, but also muscular endurance. So I, I'm doing both of those, but also plyo because I think plyometrics is something that you is quite often missed. In fact, when I went to the gym and said to the guy, um, I want some strength exercises. And well, basically I said, look, I want to, I want to be able to carry a big pack up a hill and I want to be able to do it for a long time. Plus I want to get faster at running. So I want to be able to have um, more airtime. So plyometrics. So he, he gave me some really good programs, but he said, you're the first person ever to come to me and ask me for any kind of training for plyometrics. Mm which is, that's not big in me, that's just like, you know, that's again, fascia and natural body movement, you know, that kind of thing. I think, you know, we used to do a lot of plyometrics with the cricketers and uh, the rugby players and the swimmers because they needed explosive power and changes of direction. Um, in endurance sports, particularly, it's not um, not necessarily considered, but, and Sometimes I do see the types of plyometrics that people are doing are way too um, corrosive for endurance sports. You know, I don't, I don't think there's any need to jump off a two-foot box onto the ground and spring up onto another two-foot box. You know, I don't think I don't think most endurance athletes' bodies are uh, are built to absorb that sort of um, uh, that sort of impact, or whether they have the fast twitch fibers to cope with it. Um, so that could end up doing more damage, but certainly hopping, you know, just some very, very simple two footed hopping drills and lateral drills. And the, the benefits of plyometrics is that when you land and you change direction, it improves not, it, not just the connective tissue. So the ligaments and tens, it also improves the bone strength, but it improves the bone strength in different ways. So if you only ever jump forwards, you only ever develop the, the way the bone um, responds in that direction. But if you jump laterally, then it, it helps the bone put calcium up. A pick up, take calcium and lay it down in a different way. So hmm. simple things like that have a have a huge impact. Pardon the pun on um, on bone density and strength. And that comes, you know, when you're doing lots of running, stress fractures are a big a big concern, aren't they? Yeah, this is this is sort of sort of what you're saying, which is like the um, quite low boxes, so not not the jumping onto big boxes, just like a stepper, and it is like shifting. Um, left, right, over the box, that kind of thing. Um, some squats jumping off the box, but like at very low levels. And then basically just hopping from one end of the gym to the other, two-footed hops, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. It's quite interesting now that that sort of improved over the time I've been doing it. So it took me 13 when I first started. Now it takes me 10. So I'm not sure whether that's an improvement or not, but I'm thinking that if that's carried over into running, then that extra bit of elasticity might make me a little bit quicker. But. I was watching the American football the other night and one of the players turned his ankle and the, um, he was I think he was either running back or a wide receiver. So the sprinters, the very powerful guys, 
and he had to hop off. Man, you should have seen him hop. It was like a one-legged gazelle. He just <laughs> bounced off the hop. When, when I, I rewound it, I'm like, wow, look at the distance he's traveling with each hop because there was a play going on or about to start and he had to get off the field quickly. So he didn't just do little hops. He was actually springing and it was perfectly balanced and he didn't look yeah. at all um, challenged by it. But, but, but that's the sort of training that they do regularly. Yeah, because there was one session that you you gave me, I think, it's possibly one of the SWAT sessions, but it was just like um, hopping in squares. Yeah. And then various directions. And I actually utilised that. Luckily for me, I don't, I don't get injured very often, but if I say get a tight calf or something like that, I tend to do like a- active recovery from it. So like part of that is to use those kind of plyometrics. So like even if I have to do it sort of holding on to... Uh, kitchen unit or something to sort of lessen the weight mm. I will start doing those kind of exercises and then I will say hop in squares or hop backwards and forwards and then I'll go and see if I can run for a little bit so that's that's quite interesting if anyone's listening to this and is thinking oh plyometrics might be something I'll start be very careful how you start low and slow and probably best to speak to somebody who's uh, qualified so you don't just want to go to the local David Lloyd no disrespect to the trainers there but most of those guys haven't done much study in plyometrics you want to find somebody either a physio or somebody who's used to working in the sports conditioning field that's used to um, finding the right quantity and intensity of the jumps to make sure that you can um, make progress without getting injured because you know it's very easy to get injured and if you're trying to do it to improve your running and then you get injured then that's completely the opposite um, effect that you want to have. Okay, Mark. So moving on from plyometrics, uh, a few moments ago, you mentioned um, the podcast that I did with Phil Maffetone. and I think they're two of the most popular that I've done, actually. He's, he's a controversial character. He's quite extreme, isn't he? I remember having a few conversations at Swimming with you about his, uh, his sort of fairly binary approach to consumption of sugar. So um, why don't you explain what it was that you liked about Phil Maffetone's approach and what what were the things that really resonated with you and that have actually worked? Yeah, it was quite it was quite interesting because the I listen, I've looked listened to other podcasts with regards to the sort of high fat, low carbs, and I'd always thought that I had a reasonable diet, although I did used to get that um, hangry where you you go to a restaurant. You order your food, doesn't come quite as quick as you think it possibly should be. And then you get a little bit irritated that your food's not there and you're really sort of craving food. So I did used to get that. So I was listening to Phil's podcast and his dietary recommendations. And I thought I'd try it. But there was one thing that sort of stood out for me. And I think you asked him a question where... You said, yeah, but it's okay to have a cake on a weekend, isn't it, Phil? And he said something along the lines of, and I'm sure I'm not quoting him exactly, but he said, if you were an alcoholic, would you still have a beer on a weekend? It was actually, actually, he was talking about heroin, I think. He said, would you, you you know, if... um, would you would you treat yourself to a, a shot of heroin as a reward on an evening? Yeah, um, so it was a got, little bit extreme. Get a few pe- that got a few people's backs up, I can tell you. Yeah, it was a little bit extreme, but I sort of took it how he meant it, and I thought, 
okay, I sort of see what he's saying. And you he was basically saying that every everything you have that's got sugar in it, it's going to turn off your fat-burning system in your body. Well, that's the way I interpreted it. So I thought, right, I'll just try it. And I was quite skeptical. So I did exactly what he said. I just dropped sugar completely. So I didn't have any cake on a weekend or anything. Just didn't touch it. And I just waited to see what happened. So then I started eating. If I was hungry, I just ate what I wanted. So I wasn't going hungry, but I just didn't didn't touch sugar or processed foods. And if I got hungry, I just eat nuts or eat olives or that kind of food, avocados. And then I just waited to see what happened. And weight just started to drop off. So I know as you get older, and I know Joe Friel said it in his fast over 50, he was had the same thing. They'd never had any fat around his middle, like love, love handles and stuff. But as he got older, he started to accumulate fat around, then he couldn't get rid of it. And I was sort of in a sim- similar position. I'm so I'm quite tall, so I can when I've got clothes on, I can hide fat quite easily. So people don't often notice it, but I know it's there. So I'd never been able to get rid of that area of excess fat. But following what Phil said, where I was just eating no processed carbs whatsoever and no sugars. Then it just dropped off, and I think it over the first six months it was it was quite quick, and then the rest just dropped off. And I think at the time I I was probably about twelve seven, and by the time I'd finished it, I was like eleven eleven, and I'd never been eleven eleven since I was like twenty. So I just thought, yeah, this is great, but. I'm not saying I've stuck to it exactly since because, you know, like I was out for a meal on Saturday with the family and I had like sticky toffee pudding because I thought, you know, life's for living at the end of the day. Mm -hmm. But what I do know is that it works for me. So I can go back to it at any time if I need to do that. And mostly I do follow that kind of diet. Did When you you said you gave up all processed food, so did you stop eating bread at the same time then? Yeah, I, I did drop bread. I'd, I dropped all the processed foods. And I think actually, I, initially, I didn't drop bread. I was still having like a couple of slices of toast in the morning, but that was it. And I dropped all the other processed carbs. But what I did do later on, and I think what Phil says is, yeah, you drop it all and then you see what you personally can introduce. And that, like I might be tolerant of bread, but somebody else might not. Yeah. And so I worked out pretty quickly that I can eat sort of bread and it doesn't really have that that big an effect on me. And I can eat potato, that doesn't. But things like rice and pasta mm-hmm. do. So I don't eat those. I'll have pasta very occasionally, but I just avoid it. So are you, are you just bread and bread? potatoes. Do you, do, you, uh, do, you, do you sort of have you switched to things like sourdough? Yeah, I do do sourdough bread, but I can still eat just um, wholemeal bread and it doesn't seem to have much of an effect from it. But I don't do it very regularly. The, the other thing I found is that, you know, and, and um, I don't know, you, you don't mention it in, in your notes, but um, for me, one of the other big learnings about nutrition is that, that we all need to probably eat a little bit more protein and that as we're getting older and we're losing muscle mass, eating more protein helps to retain that, particularly if you're lifting weights as well and doing your strength training 
um, is if if you're having if you have that process if you do happen to have something that's processed if you have rice then have a large piece of protein with it because that sort of nullifies the sugar impact on your on your insulin system because that's something we don't ever talk about because we don't see it and we only find out that we've got some sort of insulin disorder when we find out we're pre-diabetic um, by which time you have to make larger interventions and um, so I I've got a couple of good bakers near me and I, so I've spoken to them about how they make the sourdough bread and there isn't really any additives in there and so I've, I've chosen to to buy that and then I and then I have um, I have peanut butter or almond butter on my toast in the morning so there's quite a lot of protein with that as well mm. rather than having jam and, and lots of butter yeah I mean I'm pescatarian so like um, so I eat fish but I don't eat meat and I've been pescatarian probably for about 20 years so I eat a lot of mackerel and things like that yeah but when I first started into sport I was I was interested in nutrition right from the get-go so I bought a book called advanced sports nutrition and I read it but it was very traditional in yeah you need x amount of carbs you need to carb load before you you do exercise and if you don't then you'll bonk on the day you won't have enough energy all that kind of stuff so I read that and thought oh that's the way that you should do it but since then I've just sort of read more and more information on it and tweaked my diet accordingly and eventually got to um, Phil's podcast which was a big game changer the other thing he he said was that um, or I understood him to say was that processed carbs added inflammation to your muscles so if you'd Mm -hmm. if you'd done a big event so like an endurance event. And my habit before was that if I'd done, say, a 50-mile race, then that was great. I could just eat Mars bars and whatever I wanted after. Yeah. Um, so that's what I did. But then Phil put the idea forward that, so I mean, maybe we wouldn't want to do that because it just adds information to information that's already there. So you might want to eat like avocados and blueberries and like um, full-fat Greek yogurt and that sort of thing. So I did. And the impact of that was basically um, recovered from the event like probably 50% faster than I'd done before. Mm. And that that amazed me. Just that. I, yeah. I, I think I sort of had that reflection as well after that conversation with Phil that, you know, typically after I'd finished an Ironman, it's like, well, you just eat anything you want because you've burned 10,000 calories during the day. And so, you know, all of those cakes that I hadn't eaten for a few weeks, months, um, the pizza and everything, that was that was the first day after the race. That was that was my diet. Um, mm. But I but I also used to wonder why my legs were so sore for days and days and days afterwards. And I think probably that that film after conversation was where the penny dropped. And uh, I realised that perhaps I should be, um, I, I should be a bit more cautious about what. Yeah, the the other thing that I learned from that as well, and some of the other low carb, high fat things, was that perhaps we don't need as many carbohydrates to fuel our long distance um, endeavours as perhaps we've been led to believe. Did you did you discover that as well? Yeah, I did. And a good example of that, in fact, is that um, last year I did Lakeland Fifty, and. We got to Coniston and I unpacked everything and realised that um, I'd just left all my nutrition back in Leeds. Mm-hmm. So I said I said to Michelle, oh, I've left all my nutrition in Leeds. And it was like, the, it was summer, it was packed. There was loads of cars on the road and said, I just can't be bothered to drive to Admiral's side to 
try and buy, find some tailwind or because I, I normally carry a few sausages of tailwind, but normally just eat what I can get off the feed stations. So I just um, said I'll just find see what I can find in Coniston. So I just got a couple of sachets of like green tea and um, there was some kind of carb mix. But um, so it was very similar to to tailwind. But I just bought three sachets of that, and then I said I'll just get what I can from feed stations, uh, and that's what I did. But because it was a really hot day, and um, I carry like a water to go bottle so just fill it up from rivers so i was drinking a lot of water but i I didn't eat a lot of food Um, and i basically did most of it on like a few jelly babies maybe one of these sachets and there was only one occasion about 40 miles in where i needed to grab a bit more from a feed station because i could tell that i was sort of running out of energy a bit but yeah often now we just go out the first marathon we did it was like um gels high five gels every 20 minutes and then I just it, I'd work it out and it looked like I'd need three gels an hour or something and I just physically couldn't have three gels an hour anyway but I sort of yeah moved completely away from that so now I just I'll go out for three or four hours if I'm running and I'll just do it on water or I'll go out before breakfast and I won't need anything until I get back so it's just fat burning but I think a lot of that is psychological because I think a lot a lot of stuff in sports psychological, like distances, you know, like they, you can go out and if you do a 20 mile training run, it feels really hard. And you think to yourself, I'm going to run 60 miles because this 20 miles was absolutely horrendous. But I think you just, your brain just sets yourself up for whatever distance you're doing that day. And I think um, the nutrition thing is a little bit like that. If you think you need a gel every 20 minutes, then you're going to need a gel every 20 minutes. But if you don't, and you just eat when you're hungry, drink when you're thirsty, then you that's what I do. I'll, since I've developed that, I'm a lot better for it. Okay, Mark. Uh, you know, I think even if we'd had three hours to record this podcast, we probably couldn't have gone through that whole list of uh, things that you've um, experimented with, benefited from. But so what I'd like to do um, to wrap up is... is is look at look, almost like a traffic light system. So, you know, um, reds for stop, amber for, you know, keep going, green for started. So as a result of your learnings over the last four or five years and your personal experimentation, if you can, tr- if you can try to outline the things that you've stopped doing, so things like um, sugar and processed food springs to mind there, um, the things that you started doing and the things that you were already doing that you realized actually they were quite good and I'm just going to keep doing those. Um, and then we'll and then we'll wrap up with some of your overarching learnings and what what this all means and the advice you might be giving to somebody else who's listening to this and thinking, where the hell am I going to get started? Because there's so much here. Okay. Stop. So, so things the things you stopped doing. Yeah, I think I stopped doing was overthinking stuff, which I don't think I think most people do. Eating carbohydrates and thinking I need carbohydrates so like gels buying into the whole shoe philosophy of um, shoes can fix um, numerous defects when shoes can't fix defects only mobility and working out what the issue is can fix defects the so that kind of thing overtraining 
the first marathon we did, we did far too much training for it and really didn't taper before the marathon. So we were still doing big training runs before the marathon. So training far more than really need to train. So eating processed carbs and thinking you can get away with it. Personally, I can't. Some people, I know some people can. I, I, to be honest, I just, I'll just jump in there. I actually, I think people convince themselves they can if they look in the mirror and just look at their body type. But I actually, you know, there's a lot that we can't see that's going on in our bodies, which is where we get caught out. You know, what's happening to our, what's happening in our arteries, what's happening with our insulin, what's happening inside our heart. Um, yeah. Sorry. Yeah. So I, I actually don't think anybody can really get away with eating too much bad food for long periods of time. No, possibly when you're 20 for a little a little period of time, but not when you start to age and get to um, our age. Although I'm a few years in front of you, Simon. Uh, no, I don't think you are. I'm 58 in a couple of weeks. No, 60 a few months ago. Oh, right. Okay. okay. So just a little bit in front of you. Okay. So um, the other thing I probably gave up was I think when you first start um, competing in events and you start increasing your distance for running, you like to tell everybody about it and you like to post and you like to pick you possibly like people to slap you on the back and say you're a superhero because you've done six miles or you've done 10 miles. And like, I was all part and parcel of that. And there's nothing wrong with that when you first start. I think it's in, encouraging. But you soon realise that um, at the end of the day, no, not many people care. There's sort of a group of people that think you're amazing because they don't really do anything. And... <laughs> I think a lot of this stuff that we do that people think is difficult is only viewed as difficult because we don't we live a lifestyle now where we don't do any exercise and everything's easy. So we can get in a car and drive somewhere. But if you go to other countries, then they might run 20 miles to go to school or, mm-hmm. you know, that kind of thing. So, like, I don't want to upset anybody by talking about Ironman or ultra distance races but at the end of the day the the view is difficult because most people sit at a desk all day and probably don't run you know down the street never mind even even park run which having mentioned park run is the hardest race you can ever do mm-hmm. it's like speed is always harder than distance in my opinion I always have a little chuckle when, when somebody that's been doing Ironman for a few years say, oh, I'm downgrading myself this year and I'm just doing sprints and standards. I'm like, you know, firstly, what, what they do in the Olympics is the standard distance triathlon. And those guys are nearly always on the floor, you know, mm. pretty close to blacking out when they finished. Um, they, they're just, you know, Ironman is at an easier pace, but it's an all day event. But, but you do a sprint. Um, at the maximum you can go for that hour, hour and a half, and you will be exhausted. I mean, an hour and a half is, is you know, it's more than a 10, it's a 10-mile run, isn't it? And most people would think a 10-mile run is a long run. Yeah. Um, I mean, I'm talking from my my perspective, because obviously if you're, if you're racing an Ironman and you're, you're trying to podium and you're pushing yourself to the limit for, mm. um, you know, that length of time, then it's it's a different ball game altogether but for most people like I know a lot more people that run distance races and can do 50 miles or 60 miles and a lot I know a lot less that can run a marathon under three hours mm. and like I've never tried it because I don't really run um 
road marathons, but I'm pretty sure I won't be able to do it hmm. because mentally I won't be able to do it because I just don't think I'd be able to hit a pace and know that I had to keep it for three hours. Right. And so I think that's a lot harder. So, yeah, so I don't do that anymore. Like I'll, I'll do events and I don't care whether anybody knows about it. And I'm not interested in advertising it because you'll get, like I said, there's a pot of people that will think you're amazing for doing it because they don't do anything. There's another pot of people that think, yeah, whatever, because they run 200 miles races. So there's no point to it, is my point. So I've dropped, I don't do that anymore. And it's, you know, I think that's probably all I've really given up other than the changing technique, exercises, prioritizing running, thinking I needed to run a certain mileage to do certain distance races when you you really do it. I used to have a friend that used to come out and just um, jog around the three peaks just for a bit of training. Me and him used to go out for a day out. And he never ran any kind of distances over like seven or eight miles, but he, do, he used to do them all at like eight-minute mile pace. So... When he went out to do 20 miles at 10-minute mile pace, which was quite slow because he was just used to running 8-minute mile pace, he could do 20 miles. You know, it's like, so he didn't run distance to run distance. He just ran shorter distances quicker. So I pretty much learned that if you want to do distance, you can just run quicker, but shorter distances. It's, it's interesting when you talk to the fell runners that a lot of them cycle, and they're pretty good cyclists as well. And... um they'll think nothing of cycling from Bingley over to Pendle. So it's maybe 20 miles and it's not a flat route. He's got a big hill in the way, at least one big hill. And when you come back, it's got a big hill. So they've done this 20 mile ride. It's probably taking them an hour, hour and a half. And then they get there. Then they do, then they do a fell race. Then they probably go to the pub and have a couple of pints and then they'll ride another 20 miles back. Yeah. But, but they won't, but they won't say they're training for cycling. They'll say, well, we just, it's just a way of getting around. But then if you put them into a cycle race, they'd probably do pretty well because they've just uh, they've just absorbed this fitness from, you know, commuting. Yeah, I agree. I did one near um, Otley and the guy that won it, um, it was up near Swinster Reservoir. I can't, can't remember the exact um, village where it started. But he basically cycled up from Otley, won the fell race, got his creator beer that he'd won, put it in the back of his wife's car, um, so she could take it home for him. And then he got back on his bike and went off mm. on his merry yeah. way. And so, yeah, and, totally get that. And that's typical behaviour, not just uh, not, not just a rarity. Okay, so you there's a, a list of things that you stopped doing. What 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 did you start? I know mobility and strength was one of them. What else did you start doing? Yeah, I started to be more consistent because consistency has definitely paid off. I use a bit of an example where, like, if you're consistent with something and you do it enough, you can get good at it, even if you've got no talent. So like, I'm not particularly talented at running, but I do a lot of it. So, And if you do a lot of it, and you're mindful of how you're doing it, so you're not causing yourself injury and stuff, but you're consistent in doing it, then you get better at it. Like my mum used to bake every day, so she got good at baking. She wasn't necessarily a fantastic baker. She wouldn't be on Bake Off, but she got to a reasonable standard of baking because she'd she just did it every day. But having said that, she she'd have the odd day where she'd take a cake out of the oven and she'd go, I'll bake this ginger cake. I don't, I don't know what I've done wrong with it, but it doesn't taste like it should do. But she'd done exactly the same thing. So 
yeah, I've developed consistency. But if I go out as part of that training, that consistent training and say session don't go particularly well, I just go, I don't try and dig too much into it. I just go, just not a great day. I mean, everybody has that, don't they? Even world champions have have um, days when things don't go quite as well. Again, I was listening to that Gwen Jorgensen's podcast and, and Bobby McGee was saying, yeah, Gwen does that. She'll come back and she'll go, that was a horrible run. And he'll say, no, no, it wasn't. It just wasn't where you wanted it to be. It wasn't horrible. It just wasn't as good as it could have been. But it, again, that's that's a mindset thing, isn't it? And it's also mm. um, what you find back to that consistency is that champions have less of those what they perceive to be bad days. And particularly when yeah. it comes to competition, they and I think that's partly because they they're focused they're focused more on the process and mastering the process than they are on the actual outcome. So you'll see a lot of people on on social media bitching about the fact that oh today's run was terrible. I was so much slower than yesterday. Well, maybe they've been up all night because their their dog's been ill or they've got to go and take grandma to hospital. Yeah, I only do stuff I enjoy now, which I probably did before because. Like I've done a few triathlons, but the triathlons that I've done, I've done for a specific reason because I thought I'd enjoy them. Like I did Outlaw and I did it once and uh, to tick the box, but I probably wouldn't feel the need to do it again. Whereas like Helvellyn, I've done like eight eight times in like the last nine years because I just enjoy it because mm-hmm. it's like it's in a great place and it's um, a great run. And I'm not as quick as I was, but I think that's because I am there to enjoy it. So I'm not pushing myself as that. I'm just that, enjoying the journey a little bit more. So mm-hmm. I tend to do that more than I used to. And uh, what about things that you were already doing that you thought, well, actually, this this works quite well. I'm going to carry on doing this. Um, probably that, going out and enjoying. Probably what I actually do is, so I tend to book races to motivate me to train. So because if I didn't, then say me alarm went off at six o'clock, I probably wouldn't. Um, and I had an excuse to get up, I probably wouldn't. But so the race is to motivate me to train, but then the training is to enable me to really go out and enjoy being out all day with my mates. Mm-hmm. Like, so I've always done that. And I think I've just continued to do that. So that's not really changed. And like I said, I've not changed the fact that I tend to just do events that I like and don't do events that I don't think I'll enjoy because mentally I don't think I'm probably not the person to do that because I need a reason to do it. Like when I did um, my first ultra that was over 50, so the 60-mile one, I purely did because I thought it was a decent route and it was down the coast and I quite like I thought I quite liked looking at the the coast and the sea all day, which proved to be correct. But so, just, just to jump in there, Mark, um, if you weren't racing, you're not saying that you'd completely stop doing all this, are you? Because it seems to me like these are the things you live for, is getting out in the hills and walking and going out with Michelle and swimming in the lakes um, and riding your bike in nice places. So it's not like you actually need a race to motivate you because you'd still be out there doing this stuff. You perhaps just wouldn't be considering it as training. Yeah, no, I'd still do it. But I think the the ability to go out and do it and feel fit all day, so you you can go up the hills easily. You do, you know, you, the whole experience is nicer because you, your fitness level is at a, 
higher level. So that training delivers that. And I wouldn't necessarily do the training that I do if I didn't have an event to train for, because that's the motivator. Right. So it's sort of the three points of a triangle really that fit together. Okay, great. So um, let's say we've got a listener or lis- hopefully listeners who uh, have been inspired by your changes and want to get started. Now, of all the things that you've done, where do you think they where do you think most people are going to get the biggest return on their efforts? And and not not forgetting that this isn't just about improving your fitness for events, is it? It's improving your fitness so that you know you're you're sixty, I'm fifty eight. We both know people who are still doing stuff like we're doing at our age. So if other people are thinking, well, how how do I get to be doing that stuff when I'm sixty? What are the what are the things that are going to give them a big return that you've that you've learned? Yeah, I think it's like life choices really it's like a holistic approach to it so you really have to understand your own body and the only way to do that is to try things see if they work for you and work out what works for you so it's the same with nutrition so like every all of your podcasts i take the information and i work out um if i think that's worth a try if it is worth a try then i'll have a go at it and I'll see if it fits in with my physiology, how I live my life, and then I'll adapt it accordingly. So I would do that. And I think you've got to be able to do it and enjoy it. So don't be led by what you think other people's goals are and what you think you should be doing because other other people are doing it. It's like you said, don't be driven to do Ironman just because um, there's lots of people in your triathlon club that are doing Ironman and people think that's the be all and end all because it's not like doing doing a standard race or half iron faster. Me personally, I think it's harder. So don't be driven by that. Find out what nutrition works for you. It's like, but make the decision whether you want to you want to give up what you need to give up to achieve that it's like when i looked at maffetone he he provided a roadmap for me to lose weight and become fitter and recover quicker from races but that meant giving up certain things that i may may not have wanted to give up so be honest with yourself and go yeah i'm happy to give that up or do you know what i don't really want to give it up and neither of those things is wrong it's just a decision that needs to be made so i think that's that's the other thing be honest with honest with yourself and and if you're gonna go down a route embrace it and know that you know if you're giving up beer or you're giving up cake they're happy to do that mm-hmm. and that kind of thing um and just be mindful that what from my perspective i think that um i look to be fit for fit for life not fit for sport so like you said as you get older if you are fit for life you can still do sport but if you just focus on sport itself then that's probably not going to work for you i mean when i again when i read through that list of stuff that you'd sent me um i 
was obviously nodding. You know, I get guests on because they they have expertise that I want to learn from. And but I do find myself like you experimenting with all these things. And we we used to have long discussions, didn't we, at swimming? Um, you know, after we finished about what you were trying or what I was trying and what didn't work. And and that they were, you know, we we did have counterpoints each time. We weren't agreeing with each other a lot. But the one thing out of all of what, of what you wrote down that's really stuck for me and has had the biggest impact for me is mobility. I have always been a big fan of strength training, right? Going right back to when I was a student. And so that's, you know, that's 40 years ago. So I've always lifted weights. But Sarah Pitts, you mentioned earlier, it was Sarah and then Louisa who really got me to think more about doing the mobility and that probably was five years ago. And it, it sort of coincided when I broke my collarbone and recovering from that. And that's the thing that's made the biggest difference to my life and my, and my longevity, I think, is, is the mobility and, and introducing that. And, and gradually over time, um, it's occupied more and more of my week. Now, I, prob- I probably do about 45 minutes every single day now when I can. Um, yeah, I think I'm picking up more on that. Recently, I picked up more, a lot more on it, yeah. having read um, Shane's book and seen the benefits from it. Yeah. The, it's all part of that holistic approach to life. I think you've got to believe um, you can do things as well, because a lot of people will tell you you can't do 50 miles or you can't do um, you know, whatever your challenge is and what, um, what you want to achieve, but you, you can, and normally it's only your, your, own, your own fear of it that's limiting you so yeah my advice from my own experience is if you if you want to have a go at it have a go at it you know like, and don't be afraid of failure because like the dnf that i had was probably the best thing that happened to me because one thing it just removed the fear of having a dnf and it was probably the biggest leap forward that i made in running because i'd had it so I just reevaluated everything. I have a, a guy that I've been working with for a long time, and he wanted to enter a 100K ultra race, so 62 miles. He got to 60K, and he'd been developing a tightness in his glutes and his, the upper part of his hamstring. And a bit like with your knee in that Hardmore's race, he was, he'd gone from – he was going reasonably well for the first 20, 30 miles, well, 25 miles, and then it started to stiffen up. So then he was walking, and then it, it – like got to a checkpoint and he stopped, sat, made the mistake of sitting down. When he stood up, he could hardly move his leg. You know, he, he just couldn't walk. And so he packed in then and he was, he was upset about it for 24 hours. By the time I spoke to him on the phone, he said, actually, do you know what? I wanted to know what my limits were. So in that way I've succeeded because now I found out what my limit was. My limit is 62 K. On that day. Sorry. On that yeah, day, it was. Yeah, on that day. But only that on time. that day. But, but he yeah. now knows. And, and like you, he said, I'm, I wasn't really challenged aerobically. It was my body that let me down. Yeah. So he knows what he needs to do. He doesn't need to go back and do more running to finish it. He needs to spend more time doing yoga and doing strength work to and making sure that he's attended to the weaknesses in his glutes to get past that 62K mark. Um, and I, I found that a very refreshing outlook. Is It's not a failure. I wanted to know what my limits were, and now I know. So success. Yeah, the, um, and just the other thing is probably just try try new stuff and see how it works first. Like we haven't discussed the nose breathing, but I've been trying that since Christmas. That's that's quite an interesting concept. Well, and, yeah, go on, Mark. 
I was just going to say I've seen some interesting results from it. Just how um, how my heart rate or the limit of heart rate that I can do it has massively increased. Yeah, I've, yeah. I've noticed the same on the bike. I uh, um, the wattage that I can hold just nose breathing has been slowly edging up as I've yeah. got more skilled at it and and you're not the first person to come back to me and say that they've been trying nose breathing and they're noticing positive results so maybe what we'll do is uh, we'll get you and a couple of those other guys who've, who've been experimenting with it to come back and tell us what what you've learned yeah did you find just one quick question for you did you find that um that when you felt out of breath it was more about um, breathing out quicker and trying to get more air in because that's yeah. what i found well that, what i found to start because i broke my nose when i was younger playing um, playing rugby one one nasal passages a little sort of probably crooked and so um in those first few days i was getting lots of snot developing just because your nasal passages get irritating so then it was getting blocked up i started wearing a nasal one of those little nasal strips that you stick on the outside which helped pull the tubes apart um and also when i was pushing too hard i found that if i breathed in through my nose i could breathe out through my mouth yeah and that helped me to just get rid of that um co2 a little bit quicker yeah, I've so tried I was that. sort of like that, that was sort work. of like a hybrid nose breathing. But in terms of breathing in and you know collecting the sort of um, micro particles in in your nasal passages rather than breathing straight into your lungs, I thought that was uh, probably the best approach. Yeah, definitely, definitely going okay. Mick, um, it's quite interesting how you adapt to it. But I think that's the same with a lot of these things. Mm-hmm. You have to stick with it for a little little while, and it may not work for you but um, you may find that it does. Well, that's that's a great place to finish, Mark. I, uh, I, re- I really do appreciate you taking the time to reach out to me and, and let me know um, all the things that you've tried. And hopefully there's been a bit of inspiration for the listeners. Um, continue with the self-quantification and the personal experiments, and hopefully I'll see you out there sometime. Yeah, great, Simon. Thanks for that. It's like I feel a bit underqualified to be on here after all your amazing guests, but um, I've enjoyed the chat. Well, honestly, Mark, um, the guests come on here to share their expertise, but it's really aimed at people like you um, so that they can learn and go and try it. And, and it, it sounds like on the on the whole, it's made a huge positive impact on a lot of the stuff you do. So uh, if that was my goal for setting the podcast um, and, and delivering them and having the guests on, then I feel like that's a tick in the box. So, yeah, definitely yeah, done that for me, good, Simon. Good, good work. Take care, Mark. Thanks for being here. Yeah, thanks, Simon. Thank you to Mark for being on this week's High Performance Human podcast. As usual, there are links to all of today's discussion topics in the show notes below. Please don't forget to subscribe to the show on iTunes. And also, I'd appreciate it if you leave a rating and a review. And please join our High Performance Human podcast Facebook page. You can find a link for that in the show notes as well. So that's all from me this time. Have a great week and I'll see you on the next episode with another great guest.